Greetings and salutations, and welcome to Radio Days, a podcast radio program that delves into the world of terrestrial radio. It's DJs and on-air personality, and you, all fans of radio as a medium. Here's your host, Ron. Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Days, the podcast. As you know, every Friday morning, we publish a new episode. Today's show is produced by Ron Robbins Studios. If you need professional marketing videos, maybe you need photography, headshots, uh, maybe you need drone footage from a licensed drone pilot, head over to ronrobinsonstudios.com. You can also hear previous episodes of Radio Days, the podcast there as well. Check out interviews I've done with Jill Forsyth, Mike Skill, Greg Henson, Terry Foster, JoJo Shuddy McGregor, Dick Purton, just to name a few. All that uh, and more can be found at ronrobinsonstudios.com. And if you'd like to help uh, and become a producer for Radio Days, 101 Years of Radio, which is a documentary movie I'm working on, go ahead and hit the Patreon or PayPal links. Uh, and if you're listening on the Buzzsprout page, just click that heart icon and you can uh, you can help out. Again, as always, I want to thank you for tuning into this podcast. I really do appreciate it. And if you are enjoying it, do me a favor, share it with your friends, because if you enjoy it, I guarantee your friends will as well. And if there's a radio personality or musician that you'd like to hear more about, shoot me an email at ron at ronrobinsonstudios.com. Very excited about today's episode as I'll be talking with the front man of one of my favorite bands of all time. My guest today has made his mark by creating amazing music and is a huge fan of the medium of radio. He served as a music supervisor for the E! Channel and is a former music manager for Comcast and NBC Universal. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Rhythm Corps frontman and Lutheran High West graduate, Mr. Michael Persh. Michael, how are you, sir? And well, Lutheran High West graduate. Wow, throwing that one in there. <laughs> Always got to throw some tidbits in there. Yeah, on the west side of Detroit, in Detroit, right? You went to school in Detroit. Uh, Joy Road and um, Greenfield. Uh, so I'll, we're going to talk about your career, and, and you have an amazing career in music. But before we get to your career, Michael, let's go back to your early childhood. What is your earliest memory of listening to the radio? Okay, that was. Uh, it's probably. I'm going to say there's one. There's one. Uh, there's one visual that I have. Um, certainly, I listen to the radio and I listen to music, and was a fan of music. Like even before I could, you know, even before I knew that that was a thing. Um, my mom was Bob. My, my mom and dad um, were married. My mom was like 19 uh, or 18, and my dad was 20. My dad was in the Navy, and uh, he was in Reykjavik. And I was born in uh, 1958 when my dad was still in uh, was still in Iceland, and my mom was uh, about 19 years old. As a matter of fact, she was still yeah, she was like 19, and. Uh, um, she was a Bobby Soxer, right? So she had a lot of 45s and a record player. And I remember being three years old at this flat we lived in and this song Chubby Checker had a, a Chubby Checker. And I think it was on, a, I think it was on Parkway Records, as I recall, on one side was the twist, which everybody knew. And on the other side though, was a song called Toot. And that's the song that I loved. And I was three years old, but I was old enough to know how to, I was, I was able to actually work the record player. And I just used to play that song over and over and over and over and over again and drive, you know, drive my mom nuts. <laughs> but I would just do that day after day. So I was a fan right away of music. And at about, I, I'm going to say at about seven years old, I do my first memory about of radio is like being in my garage 
having a transistor radio and um, and wishing wishing that you know like my favorite song was going to come on and it did and it was Tommy Rose Dizzy and oh, I was like I remember that kind of doing mental high fives uh, <laughs> and because it was in the garage the acoustics were a little better than just being outside with the radio and so I just turned it up as loud as I could and thought I am the you know I'm psychic, <laughs> you know, but that was my favorite. That was my favorite song right then. And that sticks with me. It's, I remember the garage. I remember the radio. I remember wishing for the song and then it playing. That's cool. Now, now at, you grew up in Detroit, uh, like I did, but, uh, you know, there was, there was XYZ, CKLW, Keener before that, but talk to me about some of the stations and some of the personalities that you listened to in your teenage years, if you would. Oh, teenage years. Okay. Well, that would have been start well let's go with like 1970 when i was 12 because i think that was i think that was kind of a that that's something that that i th- that remind you know that sticks out and in at about 12 years old in 1970 um i found cjom uh way on the other side of the dial which i thought was completely appropriate because it just seemed like it was operating in a place that people normally weren't like we were hiding from everybody and right. um the DJ was Ron Legg. Now, to and give some backstories, he, now everybody knows about the Rock Wars in Detroit. There was Wheels, Riff, ABX, and W4, but JOM, but JOM was just kind of started a little bit, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that. I don't know that all that was going on in seventy. I think, I think Riff was seventy-one or something. Right, but my point is, JOM gets forgotten, but they were kind of the original rock station in Detroit. Oh, they were the underground station. Well, I mean, WKNR was. WKNR was doing that, and and I will tell you one other really crazy radio memory. With along with my, you know, again with my uh, um, uh, my portable transistor radio. So I remember um, I remember listening to the Paul is dead conversation. Yeah, didn't that start um, from a Detroit disc jockey? Isn't that the what happened? It was, uh, yeah, actually. Well, the one who's credited with it, and I think this is who I was listening to was Russ Gibb, and he was on uh, KNR, as I recall, and that was when KNR switched from. Now I used to listen to WKNR all the time, and uh, it was tight, hot hits format. It was tight, you know, boss radio format, basically. I think. I think it was our own version of Boss Radio, and I don't know if every, I don't know if everybody's going to be you know familiar with some of these. Some Probably of these not, but it's an education as well. <laughs> um, but but um, but you know CKLW and uh, uh, WKNR were like that you know rapid fire DJ kind of thing, and then about 1969, 1970, KNR became KNR FM went. We got an FM side, and they started having the DJs like Russ Gibb, who were like, "Hey, man, uh, <laughs> and here's some hot tuna for you right now." <laughs> and uh, and that was like CJ. By the way, that was CJOM all the way. Ron Legg, CJOM, um, just you know, really, and they were swearing on. The, I mean, like they were playing songs with you know the F, F word on the radio. Um, but that was. Uh, um, but I do remember that that Ron. Uh, Russ Gibb was doing that and that was his you know that was his thing um, you listen to these you listen and, and I've heard them like kind of recently because I do go back and revisit some of these air checks and uh, the um, 
cooler the you know the the cooler than thou sort of like dj of that era is just it just it's even sounds more cliche <laughs> than the rapid fire you know guy who sounds like he's ready to throw up kind of like hey there blah, 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 i'm gonna go down down or you know like even sounds even sounds more cliche than that because they are so hippie laid back it's, it, it was it's, almost like coffee house djs you know this is what's happening it's uh, um yeah it's it's really something the thing about it is and and here's you know and i, I don't mean to and, I, and i'm not mocking it at all what i'm saying is is that uh or, or the thing that i appreciate it was is that um i remember this and and there was a reason for it and it made it made a difference it was you know some people call it theater of the mind some people like that element of it. I like the um, I like the connection. I like to know that you know I was I was not only listening to the music, I was connected to the person who was putting it out there, and we were sort of like on the and we were on the same page. And it was it was that, all about theater of the sense. mind. It was yeah, it makes total sense. But it was I, I'm glad that you brought that up because especially you know when I tell my son and I talk about theater of the mind he looks at me like I'm crazy but it it mm. really was about theater of the mind that captured our imagination wasn't it I think the first time I heard that was um Karen Savelli said that once I was doing an interview with Karen Savelli and she was setting up I was at the Riff Studios and we were setting up that we were setting everything up and we were doing like I think it was like a I think it was like around thanks uh Valentine's Day and uh, she and which was, I believe, a riff's anniversary. Maybe you know it and I don't. Um, but I, I believe Valentine's Day was sort of like their traditional anniversary. I could be getting all of this wrong, by the way, Ron. Never let the but facts get in the way of a good story. Is, Continue. I'm relying on my memory, not Google at the moment. So, like, <laughs> you know, just going to have to bear with me. This is your truth. This is my truth. <laughs> but anyway, um, but I remember Karen Savelli saying that to me and she was like, she was setting up the thing that we were going to do. And there was a little bit of a, there was a little bit of an element of a little bit of a presentation element to it that we were going to do and fake one or one or two things. And she was, and she said, you know, but it's all theater of the mind. So just keep, you know, so, so don't worry, they can't see us. And that's, that's just how it's going to roll. And I was like, wow, that's, uh, that's actually right on saw the truth of it as they say in dune i saw the truth you saw behind the uh, the curtain if you will so uh, in those early days as in your formative year when did you say okay i'm i'm loving this music so much that i want to create this talk about if there's a musician or, or can you talk about when you knew that this is what you wanted to do with your life is is play music the answer is like so many like truckloads of people that were born around my time which is to say you know, when I saw the Beatles, I went, well, then that's, you know, I, for some reason I could relate to the Beatles. I saw them and they seemed like us. I was, I mean, of course I was like, you know, five years old, but they were happy and smile. I mean, like they were, I mean, if you look at that early, they're a little bit like the Wiggles, you know, they're just like, right. oh. you know, they're so friendly. Um, and I saw that and I went, this is great. And I love this music. And this is what, this is, is this the thing? This is what I want to do. And, but I also have to, I also have to throw a little bit of, um, encouragement from my uncle who I knew was a musician and who I idolized because everybody's got that cool uncle. He was my cool uncle <laughs> and my cool uncle played bass in rare earth. Um, at the time he was in a band called, the band was called the Sunliners. But I still knew that my uncle, who had long hair and a pompadour and had cool instrument, had guitars laying around, you know, my grandmother's house, 
was just one of the coolest guys I know. And I knew he was in a band and I saw their drum kit. I saw the bass guitars. I saw the guitars and that equipment to some people is just like, when you see it, when you're, if you're going to love it, it just, it just grabs you. What was it? Well, was it kin to maybe the first time you worked through the walk through the turntiles at Tiger Stadium and you see the green yeah. grass? Is it that kind yeah. of similar thing? Yeah, it's very much so. Like, yeah, equipment. You know, seeing musical equipment just did that to me. I was just like, oh, what is? That? It would take my breath away. Now, Rare Earth obviously was with Motown. Did he ever take you down to to the studio, or did, were you any, ever around that as a youngster? No, no. He had. They had a studio off of John R. Uh, in Detroit proper, and. Um, I went there a couple of times. Um, my uncle just took me there. He knew that I, you know, he knew that I was, um, he gave, he like, he basically gave me my first guitar, uh, my first real guitar. And I started writing with it. And then I wrote a song and I played it for him and he said, let's record it. And so my, you know, when I was, I don't know, 12 years old, my uncle took me to a, wow. my uncle took me to the studio and um, he recorded multi-track for this song that I wrote. And here was the coolest part about it at the end of it. And this is how this, this was just like, you know, my uncle was like, like I said, I idolized him. Um, at the end of it, he was like, well, let's see what it sounds like in the car. And I was like, <laughs> see what it sounds like in the car. He goes, let's see what it sounds like in the car radio. And I was like, how do we do that? Uncle John? <laughs> and he had a transmitter. And they, I mean, this, this was a band that was like, this is how they used to test some of their sounds. And he would transmit it from the studio. You'd go into that state. We'd go into that car that we had in the parking lot, turn on a particular station and boom, my song is on the radio in the car. That's cool. And I was just like, can we, can I just live here? <laughs> Cause this is where, this is now where I want to be and now what I want to do. That's cool. All right. So let's fast forward a little bit. 1981. You, along with three other fellas, uh, form a band called Rhythm Method. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Talk about mm -hmm. the, the origin of, the, of that band, would you? Oh, um, yeah, that was, uh, um, that was a bunch of strangers, frankly, getting together. Um, and I think you can probably put the blame on Greg, who, um, who was in the, the plugs. <clears throat> now I'm going to throw some bands at you that sort of just sort of came together and made rhythm core. But, um, you know, Greg Apro and Richie Loveson were in a band, the plugs with Mike Halloran from radios in motion, another radio, you know, there, here's our, here's our radio connection again. And, uh, and also Jeff Shoemaker, that band started to dissolve. And I, at that time, at that point, I was out playing with a bunch of friends, um, in the scene, we were called 33 and the thirds and we were opening up for Toby red and, you know, Toby red was kind of a favorite. We, we got what we got along well with those lads and, um, and they just had us, you know, we were kind of like their little brothers in a way. And so we played, uh, we played a bunch of shows that summer, me and my friends just opening up for, uh, uh, you know, uh, I was probably, I don't know, I'm going to say 1980 and, uh, you know, just around town doing that. And, um, Davey Bate and Davey Hombo, Davey Bass, was in a band called The Shake. Now, the plugs in The Shake would play bookies. I was playing stuff like Side Street Lounge, The Three of Us, things like that, just the bars. And uh, um, not, the, not, not necessarily, you know, I think there was a difference between bars and clubs. I think you could say there was a difference between bars and clubs back then. 
and um, and of the club side, you've got red carpet, um, nunzios, uh, bookies, you know, things like that. Legendary venues here for sure. Yeah, and then of the and of the bars, you've got like Silverbird, Papillon, or Uncle Sam's, or something like that. Um, Studio Lounge. It just things like you know, just just the bars where you'd go in and do three sets of cover songs as opposed to the clubs where you just did your set. And um, Alfie and Greg, and if I slip into it, Greg's, Greg's, everybody in Rhythm Core has a nickname. Uh, Greg's is Alfie. So if I say okay. it, I'm talking about Greg. <laughs> so Alf was out um, looking for another, you know, looking to like sort of like reform the plugs in a way. And uh, he saw me and I'd never knew, I, I never knew that. And then he brought Halloran back. And then um, after the show, they cornered me and they said, come on out, let's have a, let's have a, you know, let's, I want to chat with you about something. And this is Mike Halloran from Radios in Motion and I'm Greg Apro. And we went out and we talked and he said, let's, uh, why don't we, you know, I, I'm, I'm putting a new band together. You know, could you even come down and um, audition or, or just like, we could just jam and see what happens. And I'd never been approached by anybody like that before. And, and I was, I, you know, I was, uh, I was flattered. I was overwhelmed. I, you know, I was, I was overwhelmed. And, and I said like, wow, that, that's cool. Uh, yeah. I would, I, I don't, you know, I know who my calorie is. I don't know who you are, but that sounds cool. Right. And then I went and uh, it was Greg and Richie and uh, Vince Bannon was there, as I recall, um, just kind of like, like playing the Malcolm McLaren role in this particular scene and uh ha- and halloran was there happy was there and we just went through a bunch of xtc songs which at the time i knew almost every one of them because it's it was just the world i was living in and uh it was fun and at the end of it i was like you know i can't i can't leave my guys it's I, these are my friends i can't do that but that started to turn around and uh davy bass um, I saw Davey play with the shake and Bobby O with the shake. And then the shake group broke up and I loved the shake. I thought they were a great band. I thought Bobby O, uh, Bob Schultz was a great, I thought Bobby and Davey on stage were just exactly what I wanted. Now I love the guys in my band, but when I saw the shake, I was like, Oh God, look at the, these guys are, I, I kind of want to play with these guys. You know, I couldn't help it. It was like seeing, you know, it was like just seeing like the, the car that you want to be in. Um, and so eventually, or, or in this, or, you know, seeing a hot girl when you're with your girlfriend. <laughs> well, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's even the, that's even the more, more evil sort of like analogy, but, um, <laughs> but anyway, but Basin, but Bobby O and I became friends and, uh, Bobby O finally eventually joined my band and that's how I was introduced to Davey Bass. And then, uh, I eventually just sort of like decided that I wanted to be with Bobby O and Davey. And, um, and I called Greg and I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving my band. And I said, and I remember Greg so distinctly because at the, at the, uh, at the, you know, the quote unquote audition that we did, he played me, he goes, I wrote this song and he played me. I'm not the man, which is a song that we had on our first EP. And if you're familiar with the song, then you, you know, and you like it, and there's a good possibility you like it because it's a very, it's a really cool song. Um, And it struck me right away. I said, this guy's writing this stuff. 
this is this is mind blowing. I, I'm so this this is not punk. This is not new wave. This is not rock. This is all of it together. This is a this song is so um, beyond the fray that I, I can't believe it. It sounds like you were just so amazed by not just the song, but what this guy was capable of. I mean, how can you not want to be with somebody like that, right? He was so, and and his guitaring was so unique. I was from the world of rock, you know. I was from, you know, when we started with bands, you know, the best, the thing about being in a band back then was like, are you tight? Let's get tight. We got to get tight, you know, like, you know, start and stop on a dime, tight, tight, tight. And that was, you know, that was what was impressive. And it was just like, how, you know, how loud can you make it and how quickly can you stop it? And then there's like, you know, it, it's, there's that sort of like, you know, the minute you stop that, that power chord comes in and it fills the room and then like the drums hit and you, you know, you, you've, you've got that kicks, you know, kick snare symbol down, you know, power chord, bass hit, boom, it right. fills the room and then you stop it and it just sucks all the air out of the room and when you're in the middle of it, it's so impressive. You know, I, I want to. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but one, just what you just said struck me as because one of the things that I wanted to ask you, and I, I meant to ask Mike Skill a couple of weeks ago. I've always been intrigued by when a band comes together. What prompts them to go on and want to do new material as opposed to being just a cover band? From you, it sounds like you being exposed to such great musicians, but could you maybe talk about what the difference is between maybe a band that just kind of continues to to cover other music as opposed to someone or like like Rhythm Core ended up doing and just going on and doing your own great music? I mean, I think there's a let's put it this way: I, I you know, I was I was under the impression that there were two routes I could take, and 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 I think that we all sort of like, and I think that was an internal band discussion as well when I was in my band with friends which is to say that um, there were a couple of, there were a couple of managers out there who were managing bands who were playing, who were managing bands that were playing like five, six nights a week. These guys who were doing this and doing two or you know, doing three sets a night, these guys who were doing this, were doing it for a living. Okay. This, I could go, I could, I could list the bands that, that we were, that we're talking about here, but like, you know, just for instance, BSA was, was one of the bands that were, you know, that were out there playing regularly. And it was my understanding that these guys were playing for a living. And that is so sexy. That is just like, so like, really, you don't have to get up and go and work at a tool and die shop every day or work at the seven up bottling plant or, you know, or the uh, vitamin warehouse or something like that. These are, by the way, these are all real jobs that we had in the band. (laughs) That's inviting. And, but it is a route. And you can do that, or you can continue to slug it out, write your songs, do the clubs instead of the bars, and um, and just and just try to apply your trade and, and see if you can't get noticed. I mean, we knew that every once in a while somebody from Detroit would get signed. We knew that it was possible, but it was also sort of you know it was just such a long shot, and it, and it always has been. But it, it wasn't, you know, we weren't unaware of it, but we were also young. We felt pretty full of ourselves. We felt like we were doing something that was worthy of attention. And, um, you know, we stuck with it. So in terms of like going one way or the other, I think one of the draws is is the very, very, you know, seductive call of being a, prof- like being a quote unquote professional musician. 
Right. And the other one is like just, you know, trying to get to the point where you are actually are a professional artist. Right. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Now, another thing I want to ask you is is when you did I think you made one record with as as Rhythm Method. Talk to me about when and why you changed to Rhythm Core. Oh, that was um uh it was unbelievably we put out a record with Rhythm Method and you know, I'm I'm really glad that we did change it. Um I think our second I think our second name was much better. But um Rhythm Method was, uh, we did put out an EP and with Trans City Records, um, which was a label that was local and, you know, run by a couple of scatterbrains, as I recall, lovable scatterbrains, but, um, but they were, you know, they were aggressive in their marketing. And eventually a Rhythm Method record found its way out to Boston, Massachusetts. And uh, there was a band out there playing locally called Rhythm Method, who's one of the band's members' father was a lawyer. And they tapped us on the shoulder and said, we're Rhythm Method, you can't be Rhythm Method. Thinking about it now, it's like, yes, <laughs> do you remember the Rhythm Method controversy <laughs> in 1981 when that famous band Rhythm Method almost had their name stolen by these upstarts in Detroit? There was riots in the streets for crying <laughs> I mean, I mean, they said stop. And we had, um, and we had, we talked to this lawyer. We we ended up with Michael Novak, by the way, eventually. But at this point, we did not have Michael Novak. And um, we just had somebody who was going to help us with this. And the guy goes, uh, well, I don't know. Come up with some other names. And uh, we came up with the worst. Literally, just it's the, the worst thing. One of the worst things is naming your band. It's just so awful. <laughs> Especially when you've got four little Napoleons. Well, can you share uh, some, maybe some ones that were so ridiculous that oh, they were like, so no. Bad. Well, at the time, this, and this, I just, we're just, just completely not PC and, uh, you know, like YBI, Young Boys Incorporated, which was like <laughs> a, which was like a Detroit gang that yeah. was murdering people. Um, I, was it New Jack City based on the, the, the New Boys? I'm I don't know. know. I don't know. I think there was like killer. No, that, I think New Jack was Young Killers. Maybe yeah, I think or, yes. You're right. You're right. You're right. Black BK BK the Y something BKs as I recall is something Black Killers, and um, that which I think was also Detroit. I remember seeing their graffiti everywhere, and then another one was uh, dancing at Greg was Greg was shopping dancing actors at us. Dancing actor, uh, dancing actors, and um, God, it was just. It was just, you know, one horrible name after another. Um, and then uh, <laughs> I remember a friend of mine, a friend of mine, a guitar player that I played with for a while, dear, dear friend of mine, still a friend of mine. His mom was like, how about the scamps? I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like that's a good one. Um, but eventually this lawyer's secretary, a, like a mature woman working, you know, in his front office, said uh, Rhythm Core, and it was the first name not everybody hated. Nice. It's per it and sounds, so, I mean, now I can't even imagine it being anything but Rhythm Core. It was just perfect. Well, either can I. Either can I. I don't even know her name, but, you know, and not only that, but we weren't that, you know, now I can't think of it anything but. But the thing is, is like at the time, it was just like by default, the thing that, you know, like Richie, he's like, oh, I don't hate it. Davey, <laughs> eh. Greg, eh. 
me, eh. this was, I mean, we were like, <laughs> eh, about the name. And, uh, and then we were just free, you know, we were like, all right, well, we don't hate it. We need one. Let's go. I think uh, I think they depicted in the, in the Temptations how hard it was for the Temptations to pick out that record. I remember that name, and I can't I even think remember. Think about the Beatles. What a oh, horrible name! Right, right, yeah. Terrible name, Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so you you re-release your record, but let's move on to 1985. You guys released Spirit Decor. Is this when you were like, okay, I think I think we got something here, and and let's just take it to the next level? Was that your train of thought, or what was your train of thought when you guys put that record out? Well, I mean, I think. Uh, we were we were constantly hoping that we could get somebody like Roberta Peterson from Warner Brothers to come look at us. We were aware of her simply because we started to shop some managers, and I think I think that name was thrown out by Randy Sawson, who eventually did manage us. But he was also playing locally in in a band called Something American, and then he had moved to California. Um, so he was. He had found friends in the music industry out there and uh, was still in touch with us and um, and said, like, you know, hey, you know, you know, we would hear once in a while that somebody was coming into town. Randy would tell us who they were. And then, uh, um, you know, I, I started to become aware of who was who was out looking. So we were just hoping that at some point someone was going, you know, we thought that there was like a, you know, at you know, we were on the. Detroit was part of the circuit, not a main part of the circuit, but part of the circuit that A&R people would go and see bands at. We didn't really have any money to go to California, but, uh, um, but eventually we did. So Mike Halloran, who was throwing in as our manager as well at that time, was out in California too. And he said, come on out and play a couple of the clubs. So we just, you know, we got in a, we, we took a bus and a truck and hauled our butts out to uh, California, which was our first time to see Los Angeles, and uh, probably 1984 or 1980, well, maybe even earlier than that, probably 1982. Because as I recall, the record was, uh, the first record had to have the name changed. So by the time we were doing a spree, we were we were aware of the machine, you know, the record industry machine, and we kept and we just kept trying to put our lay our record in front of people. And eventually, Randy Sawson, uh, who I mentioned before, who became our manager, put it in front of um, one of the guys over at Warner Brothers, Steve Berman, who was a heavyweight there. He still may still may be, and. Berman, actually, Randy was going through Berman's record collection and he saw Rhythm Corps, Esprit de Corps, and he goes, you, he goes, you have this record? And Berman's like, uh, oh, yeah, that one. And Randy's like, I know these guys. And Berman's like, yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. And Randy's like, I'm bringing, and Randy just said to himself at that point, I'm bringing them out here. And so eventually we followed Randy out. Randy enticed us to come to California. We got a little band house. Uh, 6622 DeLong Prix Avenue in Hollywood, right across from DeLong Prix Park. Uh, four, four bedrooms in a haunted house. And that's where we made our bones and wow. got signed. And so how, when you were in this house, like, were you guys just rehearsing every day? I mean, what was, what was this? I mean, was that what you guys we had, had a rehearsal? Stu- we had a rehearsal studio, like a lot of guys, like a lot of people, um, because we were really working. We, we, we were, you know, we wanted to work seriously and we didn't want to have to worry about cops right. coming by and 
banging on the door and neighbors and things like that. So we had, we, we rehearsed at VCS studios um, like a lot of bands did in the Valley. Uh, we would just, you know, we were in Hollywood. We drove over, uh, we drove over uh, Laurel Canyon into the Valley every day wow. and we rehearsed at VCS studios. And uh, so that was our, those were our days. I mean, like we had no money. What were you living on ramen noodles and grilled cheese? Oh no! It was like even more creative. Uh, uh, Ralph's orange drink and Cheerios. <laughs> Breakfast of champions. That was, was a point where Ralph's orange drink. By the way, Ralph's is the is the sort of Kroger's out here. Ralph's um, Ralph's Ralph's orange drink was cheaper than water. Wow! And we were told when we came to California, don't drink the water. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I don't know how many boba mices. I don't know how many like stupid little, you know, right. old wives tales we were we were adhering to. But like that was one of them. So, now, did you guys tour with that record? Hmm? Did you guys tour with uh, with the Spirit Decor? Did you guys? Uh... Not really. No, played a little, we played around a little bit. We were not hip enough. We were not. We were just not aware enough to really know how to tour, uh, to understand touring. To us, Detroit was everything. I mean, to us, Detroit was the big city. And, you know, playing outside of Detroit always just seemed like, you know, we played colleges, right. certainly, but it always seemed like that was, that was just like, you know, now we're playing the backwoods places. Right. Uh, playing St. Andrews was, you know, the pinnacle of what we did. And we just kept thinking, we're, if we just keep playing headline shows at St. Andrews, like we'll make it like the Romantics did. You know, I did not know the Romantics at that time. And I didn't realize that they had, you know, toured regionally. Um, and to us, the Romantics just looked like a band that played once in a while. And they were very good. And they made it a big deal. And they got popular. And then somebody noticed them. You know, just like we were naive. <laughs> and we just thought that that's how it would happen. Well, so. I, I know you had Vanishes on that record. And there was a couple other ones that I think yeah. are phenomenal. But I really... I mean, and I know the single is probably, you know, we got the most national airplay, but I, to me, this record, Common Ground, that you guys made mm. was the first record that I remember thinking, I love every single cut on this record. And I know, like I said, Common Ground got the most love, but Father's Footsteps, I want to ask specifically about that. And I, and I, and I learned at the top that your dad was in the service. Did you write, talk about the, the writing of that song? Cause that, to me, that song still is more apt today than it ever was. I love that tune, Father's Footsteps. Could you talk about that song if you would? Sure. Um, you know, listen, there's a, you know, there's a certain, there's a certain grandiose to rhythm core just in our concept. You know, we, we always wanted to be larger than life. You know, rhythm core to us existed out, existed as a thing that was not us. Our, you know, we were all, we were all relatively humble, regular dudes, but when we were, but rhythm core to us was like, this huge thing that that we had to serve in a way. I don't, I don't, I don't know if that really makes a whole lot of sense, but um, but we saw rhythm core as like its own entity that we had to you know we had to like bring and and be large when we were in rhythm core. Um, a little bit of split personality there. So doing that song seemed completely right along lines. You know, I look at it now and and, and you know a lot of the songs that we did and they, and they seem uh, it, it seems like we're, we've taken on maybe a little bit more than we can chew. But um, in terms of, in terms of father's footsteps, we all grew up in the Vietnam era where you woke up 
played outside during the summer and at night you had dinner and Walter Cronkite was on the rate was on the TV um, giving you the you know w- giving you the body count of the day right. and how many American soldiers were killed versus how many Vietnamese soldiers, you know North Vietnamese soldiers were killed this was the world that we grew up in Edwin Starr did a song called war you know there was like protests we we grew up at a time when it was you know war the vietnam war was prevalent it was opposed it was i mean it was controversial and we were you know basically as young people we were you know we were influenced by the not the older people but by the you know the younger the younger older people if that makes sense you know the um the teens and the uh you know the people that we were you know the the the, the people we were looking up to that we thought were cool so and and of course music reflected it so rhythm core had that had that you know desire to be did that desire to think that music could be larger you know music could actually do something so for father's footsteps we just we uh, i think at the time we there was conflicts going on around the world i'm trying to be i think we you know um brits invaded the falklands there were some other there were things going on around the world and it just seemed to me like we were gearing up for another vietnam and so father's footsteps basically um was just saying let's not do that again let's not follow in our father's footsteps and you know some of the you know every once in a while you get a you get a line that you get a line that sort of like pro, that propels a song into the you know that propels a song oh. Um, Davey, I think, came up with the line Father's Footsteps. And then I think I came up with one of the lines in it that was like, you know, um, point blank range, 15, you know, 15 minutes is oh, point blank. Oh, that's a beautiful line. Yeah. And um, and so with those two lines, we we just, you know, those two lines dictated what this song was going to be. And we made it. And so we just kind of like did that. Now, first of all, isn't that weird? I mean, for I, I, I do want to say that I, there's more than more than one song has been written because because somebody came up with a line. We're like, oh, that's a good one. Let's do that. And then you just write the song around that line? Yeah, exactly. Another one that really, talking about great lyrics, Solidarity, that's another one that has some very, you know, very impactful lyrics. Talk about that song. I've, you know, I've written about that one online before, but um, that's, you know, that was the first song that Rhythm Corps wrote as a band. And at the time, we still had Bobby O in the band. We were downstairs just trying to figure it out. We didn't know who, I, I didn't know who Richie was. I met Richie because he came down. Because Greg said, Richie's going to play drums. Okay, great. Richie's playing drums. I don't know this guy. Uh, Davey had just moved back from Traverse City. And I knew he was going to be in the band. I just didn't know him. And Greg, I just was familiar with. He was, you know, we didn't, you know, like I said, we had, we'd done a, an audition together and Bobby O was, you know, a friend. So he was the only one that I really knew down in the basement over at Richie's house that day. And we started playing and probably the second or third time that we got together, Greg brought in those, Greg brought in the riff for solidarity. And Davey said to me, I got an idea. Uh, I've been pulling, I've been, I've been, you know, I've been thinking about this idea back then, Lech Walesa and uh, the solidarity solidarity movement in Poland was making news. So bass goes, how about this for an idea? 
solid you and me solidarity. Now it sounded more like a love song, but um, he said, you and me solidarity. I was like, yeah, that's kind of cool. I like that. I like that you're taking a topical, you know, something topical and turning it into something. And then Greg played this. And immediately, as soon as Greg started playing that riff, the riff was just so obvious. Everybody in the, like Davey, Greg, uh, Davey, Richie, um, Bobby, boom. They started playing basically what you hear on the radio, what you hear on that record. And it was just like guitar riff, bass, drums, go. And it just seemed, and I started just vamping. I started vamping, uh, like, which is what I would do. I would just vamp vocal lines. And bass had just whispered solidarity in my ear. So there was an obvious place for, I thought, for solidarity in it. Well, that's what I was going to say. You give credit to the musicians, but man, do you, more than most songs of rhythm core, you really used your voice as an instrument in that song. You did things with your voice that I think were amazing. So kudos to you, sir. Yeah. Well, I was trying to match what, I mean, like my, you know, my voice was my instrument. I wasn't playing anything. So it's like, you're standing there and these guys are just pumping. It's louder than bombs. And they're just, you, you, I mean, there's only one thing you can do is scream, you know? Right. It's, yeah. it's, it, it's the only thing that makes sense is to, you know, just sing as loud and as hard as you can to what's going on all around you. And then, um, and then lyrically, it just kind of came together with, um, uh, I think I had said like a flight, I, a, this air, this flight had gone down in the Potomac um, and there were, uh, um, but there were survivors and um, it was the winter and people were on the side of the banks of Potomac making a human, you know, con- you know, cr- creating a human chain to go out and bring people in who were, who were, who had, made it through this crash who were in the river and um that picture was on the that picture was on the front page or or in one of the pages of the free press that was lying there next to me and that line and and i saw that and the line was you know strength that binds us to the common purpose came into you know just kind of came into my head great lyric and i went and that was it that's all i had i had solidarity and strength that binds us to the common purpose and then a bunch of vamp lines and then, you know, I said, okay, well, that's, well, there you go. That's where this song's going. We yeah. hammered out, you know, I hammered out the rest of the lyrics. Now, obviously, I would love to go through each one of these songs, but before we move on from Common Ground as the record, I have to ask you about the single. I mean, that was, you know, I think the famous line is, we're not that stupid. Were you surprised by the, that that was, out of all these great tunes, all these 10 cuts that were just flawless, if you ask me, that that was the one that broke out? And, and how did you feel about that at the time? Um, it was... Uh, you know, there was something, there was something about it. Like I knew, you know, we knew that it was a good song because of the way that it would went, it went over live. And once we recorded it with Ben Gross over at Pearl Sound, we did three songs with Ben and we took them out to California and shopped them. And that's where we got our deal. Ben's version of Common Ground was the version that actually ended up on the record for Sony uh, for, you know, uh, uh, you know, and uh, much to our other producers chagrin, and we fought for it because we just thought it was a, we thought it was like, it was the cut that really, that really worked. We cut it back in Detroit. It sounded great. Ben has obviously gone on to prove himself to be just the world-class producer of doom. And, uh, um, and we were right to, to fight for it. And we did. And it, and it, and it literally, it really came to, it was not, it was not an easy fight, but that said, 
that line always haunted me because it was just like, it was clumsy and, and weird and everything that I don't like, but it was also, that's also what I liked about it. It was, you know, I like, uh, I like to think that there's some sophistication to the lyrics and that line was not, that line was dumb. <laughs> and there was something about putting a, just a, just a sledgehammer of a line in a song that seemed to have some nice elegance to it that appealed to me at the time. It was sort of like a inside joke. And yet when we went to the studio to record it, I tried like a hundred different, I was like, I can't use this line. This is, this, this is that stupid. <laughs> and, and I, and Ben and I worked on this for probably an entire night. And I just hammered, I hammered out line after line, after line, after line. And it was like, and he finally stops me and he goes, you know what? He goes, stop it. This line actually works. And it adds just the right amount of quirkiness to the song. Yeah. And I, tr and I, and I trusted him. And eventually, you know, and at that, you know, at that point, Ben and I were just starting our relationship. I still, you know, I see Ben once a week. Um, we are still, we are still dear friends. Um, as a matter of fact, he's, you know, I, I don't count many friends, um, close friends and Ben is one of them. So I trusted him. Uh, I've always trusted him and he was right. He was right. Another thing I want to ask you specifically about that song is I find it interesting because Eddie Money was infamous for doing this, but starting, starting the chorus at the beginning, starting the song at the beginning, like the, the lyrics or the, the name, w w was there a thought to maybe writing a verse before that or what made you go right into the, to that? Um, because when I wrote it, that's just how it, that's how it presented itself to me. Um, I've, I'm a firm believer in the muse of, in the muse and, uh, I've woken up with, you know, a, you know, a song's bridge in my head. I've woken up with, you know, the, the beginnings of a song in my head. Um, and sometimes, you know, further parts than that. So when a song presents itself to me, I believe it. And uh, that's how the song presented. And, you know, it's not that different from Solidarity. Solidarity presented it like that, I believe. It sounded like, you know, I think Mike Skill mentioned it to me when I met him. He was like, the song just starts off with the chorus. I was like, yeah, it kind of does, doesn't it? Um, so we just, uh, so yeah, I, I don't think there was any, there was no real, uh, there was just, like I said, I was just, we're, for that song, following the muse. I did a lot of that. Did you ever find that after you recorded a song, you wish you would have changed? I wish I would have done that. I wish I would have put that there. I mean, I'm sure being a creative, oh that's crossed your mind. But is, is there maybe one that you just still eats you up? I was like, I, this could have been so much better if I did this. There's one song in particular. That there's Maybe there's two songs in particular that I felt probably could have been a way that probably should have lived better lives. Um, one of them is um, World by Storm. And which is, once again, you know, pretty, pretty um, highfalutin lyrics, but it wasn't about the band taking the world, but it was just, it was, it was something else. One of the line in that song, one of the lines was, um, I remember, I remember a line about China when I was in the sixties and seventies, when I was a kid and people were warning, you know, one of the things everybody was being warned about was co growing communism, which is why we were in Vietnam. And, um, you know, domino, the, 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 the quote unquote domino theory of falling nations and eventually leading to China taking over the planet because China at that point was a sleeping giant. And I heard that in school and I was like, China is a sleeping giant. 
that's an amazing concept. Right. And so World by Storm came, began with love. Um, I, I substituted China with love as the sleeping giant. Okay. And Greg had such a great riff. But it went into this B section that I was like, this is wrong. And I, I had this argument with the band. I'm like, this B section's all wrong. It's wrong. I, I knew it was, you know, I was just like, I know this is, I know it in my gut that this is wrong. And, uh, but, you know, we were, you know, we're a democracy. Rhythm Corps was a full on democracy, much sometimes to our disadvantage. <laughs> um, and it won out. And that song, I still think, could have been a way better. So it could have been a really, really good song because Greg just came up with like such a killer, killer riff that we should have, we should have leaned into it better. Eventually Davey says to me, you know, you, you know that argument we had about World by Storm? I was like, yeah, he goes, you were right. <laughs> and I know I was right. Well, I, I, should, I should have asked you this earlier, but I asked Mike Skill the other day. I, I, one of my favorite tropes, it's a favorite Hollywood trope is you'll, you'll see somebody in the in a music a movie about music where they'll show somebody listening to their song on the radio for the first time obviously you know you heard it on the radio when you were a youngster but as far as rhythm core talk about the first time you guys heard a rhythm core song on the radio and and and, and walk us through what that was like for you guys gosh I would love it if, if it was one of those scenarios where we were all in the same car and we heard it on the radio but it doesn't work out like that I was working in a tool and die shop, my dad's tool and die shop, actually, um, probably summer, hot day. Doug Podell had, and uh, I think the people at Riff and, and Wheels had decided to start playing Broken Halos off of the local record. And um, so I think, uh, I think we were listening to Riff at the, studio, at, the, at the tool and die shop. So I'm working, just doing my gig, all of a sudden, boom, it's like, I, it might be, I might have even been Arthur P. That's cool. And uh, I hear, boom, 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 boom. I was like, or I hear that, you know, I hear the opening, you know, the opening drum lines to uh, um, Broken Halos. And I knew that they were going to play it. I just didn't know when they were going to play it. And they put it into their rotation. And so the first time I heard it at the shop, I was just like, wow, that's me, guys. That's my band. And everybody knew I was in a band. I mean, you know, long-haired guy working at the school. I mean, that's not a, that's not a, you know, it's it's not rare, but, uh, but yeah, everybody knew what I was doing on the side. Very cool moment. It was, it was pretty, it was, it was pretty cool. And, and people were pretty, and, and the guys at the shop who were all much older than me were, were, you know, congratulatory. Very impressive, very impressive. Now, I remember along with my friend Chuck Rousseau, who you've met, uh, and thousands of other Detroiters, uh, for that matter, came out to uh, Hart Plaza in Detroit during the Grand Prix. I've, uh, I want to add, I mentioned that because I've heard you say the Detroit audiences are vastly different. Talk to me about the difference between a Detroit audience and, say, an audience from another part of the country. Because is it different, and in how, and in what, how so? Well, I, I think there's a, I, I think, you know, some things are just perceived, Um Growing up in Detroit, we all, you know, I can speak, I can speak to the blue collar Detroit rock ethos, like from firsthand, from the front row. And with Detroit, you know, you're waking up and you're, you know, you go like Richie worked at, I think Richie worked at like, you know, one of the plants. Um, but like, I knew a lot of people who worked at the, who worked for the auto industry and then in the, you know, in the plants. And these guys were, 
you know, all good, you know, like great dudes, um, blue collar, blue collar poets, you know, and um, they would work hard all week. And then Friday and Saturday night was the night. And if you are, you know, you're going out on a Friday night, you're going on a Saturday, this is, you know, you're slugging it out all week long. So on Friday night, it's time to let loose. On Saturday night, it's time to let loose. You only get two of those a week and they are precious. And if you're going to the, and back then there were so many rock clubs and rock bands to go see. And, you know, you'd go out and you were going to, you were going to get, you know, like, you know, the audiences were young and aggressive because that's what partying in Detroit was like. It was aggressive. It wasn't just, you know, it wasn't very laid back. And uh, um, that was just, that's how it was. So if they were having a good time, that aggression was them dancing. Right. And having a, you know, and, and hooting and hollering and having a great time. If they did not like the band, that aggression was still there, only it was aimed at you. Right. And I'd seen that, you know, I'd been a part of that. And so as a band, you know that you do not want to go through that freaking gauntlet at all. So when you get in front of a band in your hometown, Detroit, that is, uh, you better bring it. I, I'll tell you this. I remember uh, the first time I went to see Triumph and uh, a bad company opened up for for them in, I think it was 87. And Brian mm. Howe had just taken over. Paul Rogers wasn't with him anymore. I remember people were throwing cigarettes at that guy. I felt oh so bad. But um, another thing, I, yeah. I, it's just crazy. Like, now, you guys have uh, done shows with the Psychedelic Furs, the Jam, Billy Idol. Uh, yeah. You mentioned the Romantics, I think uh, Cheap Trick as well. Can you share maybe a, a cool rock and roll story? Uh, this is we're rock stars is now because this has happened. I mean, there's infamous stories, but do you guys have maybe one or two great rock and roll stories? There's nothing there, 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 you know, there's, there's nothing that really, you know, really stands out to me uh, in terms of just like um, great, you know, great, like, you know, like remember the time when Keith Moon came and stuck his foot in Richie's drunk, you know, <laughs> it's like, you know, I don't, I don't have that, but I do remember, this is not, this is not that, you know, this is, this is just, this is just the real, the reality of the situation. There's a lot of people out there that, that you're impressed by. Um, when you're a musician, you're, you know, that, that, that those people who you're impressed by or intimidated by becomes kind of, it can be kind of eclectic um, just because you're influenced by, you know, your influences are different. So I remember we've opened up for Graham Parker in the rumor one night and I was also doing, you know, and we were, you know, and we were, you know, rising at that point. It was our turn to get on stage and do a sound check. And Graham Parker and his band, and I think it was like uh, Schwartz, um, Brindley, Brinsley was on stage, I believe. And Graham was on stage and they were lingering. Um, just so, And we were setting up and I... And I, you know, that was my, I, I was such a huge Graham Parker fan. I adored, I had, I, I had, I was like, yeah, beside myself. It was the, that was my moment to say, hey, hi, how you doing? <laughs> I could not, I could not get the words to come out of my mouth. I, he was standing where I was supposed to be standing for my sound check. I couldn't, I couldn't even approach him. It was really that moment I just felt like, wow, this is this is somebody. And, you know, I say Graham Parker to a million people these days and they're like, who? <laughs> and uh, and I, I just recall I just recall being like, you know, 
thinking to myself, wow, I'm really, I'm not like, we're really, we're really getting there now. This is, this is really, you know, this is, this is now becoming real. And, um, I, it's, it's to this day, it was like, I, I, I didn't, I never stopped myself from saying hi to anybody after that, because I thought that that was just like, wow, the one, you know, one of the people, yeah. one of my idols, I, I just, can... I, didn't, I, I stuck away from. So besides that, I mean, other than that stories from the road, hell yeah. There's a ton of, there's a ton of crazy stories from the road. Probably but not appropriate. Interacting, <laughs> interacting with like, you know, rock stars and things like that. Not so much, because first of all, you're the opening band. If I'm, a, if I'm, a, if right. you know, in those situations. Well, uh, maybe an anti-rock story is, and, <laughs> and I'm hoping that you'll share this with me. But uh, you, you know, uh, when we interviewed for the movie, when Chuck interviewed you for this movie that we were doing, um, I, I was looking through the footage and, and I saw a great story. Talk about when you guys requested your song to a college DJ. Uh, this is an amazing, <laughs> hilarious story because all you're doing is promoting your band. This guy's like. You know what? Fuck you. You guys are stupid. Well, tell me about that. That was a this is a I great mean, story. Was just, listen, I, you know, we were traveling in a van, had been traveling in a van. Um, we were on tour for the first record and, um, you know, always having a good time when we play. But like one venue has two people. One venue has 200 people. One, you know, it's like, but we always enjoyed it. That that said, living in this, you know, it's basically like living in a bomb shelter with a bunch of guys. Every once in a while, the doors open. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> let's just, okay, get right to the club. Let's go right to the club. <laughs> get in there and get sound check, get back in the stupid van. Oh, that's what we were, we were doing that. And, um, and so reality just starts to just really fade. Uh, we were driving through and we're listening to radio stations, trying to pick up college radio stations because we had determined that night that we were going to target a college radio station and like get them to play our get them to play our song, and we found one, and we and we and we I, I don't know how I think they said you know hey if you want to hear something call blah blah blah, and we called the college radio station. And we're like, hey, we're out here. We're out here in the road. We're listening to your radio station. We're rhythm core. You should play. Do you have our record? The guy's like, yeah, actually, I do. <laughs> goes, Would you play one of our songs from there for us? You know, and he's like, okay, I'll do that. And you know, being and he was the, real cordial too. He he didn't lead yeah, you to think yeah, that he was going to blow fine, shade on you, fine, did he? He was fine about it, or whoever I was talking to was fine about it. But uh, <laughs> but being but being a college radio DJ. Uh, is sort of like the coolest job on campus. Right. So, you know, one of the things I didn't realize was like, he's, the, this is, I'm talking to the coolest guy on campus at this particular moment in time. And uh, so he said, all right. Uh, and we're listening. He goes, all right, we're going to play a song by, uh, there's a band out there traveling uh, called Rhythm Core. And uh, we're going to play, they called me up and they said they wanted to hear uh, not somebody else's songs, but one of their own songs. So, uh, for the, you know, like, which is a little weird, but like, let's go ahead and play it for him anyway. It was like, you know, I'm paraphrasing at this point, but like, he just kind of like wrote us a little bit. It was a little bit of a lesson. I'm going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. It was a little bit like, yeah, we are a little bit, you know, we should be a little cooler than this, I think. 
Well, it, it's interesting too because I mean, grunge came and changed the way rock stars were viewed. But uh, uh, you know, I mean, you guys were you guys would call radio stations and do promos because you were definitely promoting the band. It was a different time. I think more bands did that. Was that was that? Did you find that to be work to call these? Because there was, I mean, you were calling stations all over the country, weren't you? We were. Well, you know, I mean, ask any other guy in the band; they might have a different story. But like, you know, Richie and I were on the same page my drummer and i were on the same page in terms of like um in service of the band and um as far as we were concerned the band wasn't the band wasn't me and the band wasn't richie the band was rhythm core and there's no yeah. such thing as too much promotion for rhythm core no not at all we were like let's just let's just you know like we would we would go to cbs um we would go to cbs you know in century city they'd give us an office They'd give us a bunch of trade papers. We'd see we'd see who was adding it, and we would just call them and be like, "Thanks, man," and uh, "Hey, it's Michael Persian from the Court. I just want to say thanks." And more times than not, I found that they would do instant interviews with us, or they would have us do like uh, you know some sort of liner for the you know some sort of like uh, uh, you know I, station ID, which you know that became apparent to us right away. We we're like, "Oh, okay. Well, this makes sense. Let's continue to do this." And we and we did. Richie and I just hammered. We hammered on the phones. We and, are and it was effective machine. too. It was very effective. Um, I you know I I I I hope it was. I think it was to a degree. Um, but I think you know I think the road is always probably the best. I think our I think our strong suit was our live, was our live performance because what I discovered was is that with Common Ground being the lead off track and basically being the only song that was really getting any, any work from that record, people had a particular view of us based on that song. And we were a live pumping rock band, right. very, very engaged and very live and very sweaty. Don't, don't be in the first three rows unless you want to be wet kind of a thing. Did you enjoy interacting with the crowd with conversations between the tunes? Is that something you enjoyed? Because you were good at it. Yeah, I mean, I, di I did. I like people. I, it's weird. I like, I do like people. You know, like, I'm, I'm like, every time I talk to someone, like, I find so many people that don't like people, but I love people. And I like to see, and I like the crowd. And when I'm, when I'm representing Rhythm Core, um, it's, it's, it's me, but it's not me. So it's a different thing that it's a different conversation that I get to have. I get that with uh, with an audience, but I like it because they, you know, like right away they want to be engaged, and so like really you want to you want to engage with me on something you know something fun and exciting. Great, let's go, let's go right now. Well, I, I'm all I'm all about that. To me, I think common ground brought people to the party and once they discovered the music other than that i think that's when you got your hardcore fans but uh to that point rhythm core and other bands like dc drive and scores of others seem to have uh, had their momentum obstructed when grunge moved into the mainstream in the early 90s what did grunge music do to rhythm core if anything well it cleared out the roster over at cbs except for us and the godfathers we tommy matola was still running things over at cbs and um, there were tons of bands. There was a lot of bands, lot, sort of like quote unquote new wave and, and, and modern rock bands on CBS. I can't even quite recall who they were, but there was a, there was like just a, you know, a bloodbath of bands being let go. And Tommy Matola said, there's only two bands we're not going to let go 
of the new signings. And he goes, that's the Godfathers in Rhythm Corps, personally. And I met, and I met Tommy um, at, a, at a bowling banquet once. And gregarious guy seemed like a really, you know, just, just seemed like a, you know, like, a, like the record company cliche. I actually, I, I took to him. I liked him. Um, but I spent, you know, four minutes with the guy. But anyway, he was, uh, he was a fan of the band. And then there was a huge, and almost immediately within probably six, seven months, there was a huge shakeup over at CBS and uh, Tommy was gone and David Glue came in and that changed everything. And I remember I met David Glue in Detroit for about 10 minutes because he was in between flights and so we he said, I want to meet you guys, come to the airport and we'll have a drink at the Hilton or something. And we met him at the, we met him at Metro. We spent 10 minutes with the guy, you know, just, Hey, how you doing? And, and he goes, okay, I'm out of here. I just wanted to say hi. And then I met him again, probably, you know, when we started the second record, uh, started promoting the second record and it was in New York at the bottom line, we had done a showcase. And uh, there was a whole, there was a big CBS to do going on afterwards. It was a meet and greet. And somebody came up to me and he put his arm on my, put his arm on my, put his hand on my shoulder. And he was like, that was a really good show. I said, thanks. I'm Michael. And he goes, I know I'm David glue. <laughs> and I was just like, motherfucker. <laughs> um, and I don't think we ever recovered. <laughs> <laughs> And we ended up, uh, we ended up not on the label probably, you know, um, oh, man. within about, within a couple of months, uh, the second bad. record was not doing all that well. Uh, it just, you know, they just didn't, they, they either didn't know how to promote it, promote it. They didn't want to promote it or there wasn't anything to promote. So what did you do when you stopped touring and, and realized, okay, grunge is pretty much here and we can't, I mean, there's just not as many opportunities. What did you, uh, what did you do at that time? Well, you know, one of the things we did is we doubled down on on the basis of fact, on the fact that we were a rock band. We just went out and we started to do some more demos. I feel like people thought that we were climbing on a train that was already rolling, but the fact of the matter was is, you know, I, I think Davey and I, th I remember having this conversation with Davey. I'm like, Davey, what, what are we? I'm like, we can be we, we can be eclectic and and go against the grain if we want. I said, but like what? we're a rock band. Shouldn't we just keep on, you know, like bass was like, absolutely. You know, let's just, let's just double down on the rock thing. And so we really leaned into it. Um, even as, you know, and, and I think, you know, some of the songs that we wrote at that time were actually, you know, they were, they were, we'd never recorded them, but they were great, you know, great heavy rock songs, but we just never got any, we just, you know, people knew us, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the, the personnel at the rate at the labels had changed, but not so much that they didn't know who we were. And we were the common ground band. We were not this heavy, heavy band. Right. That's the one of the things that I think that, wa that, that was an issue. A lot of people at the labels, they just don't do their homework. You have to make them want to do that. You have to make them need, want or, or have to do their homework. I don't think they're going to, a lot of them aren't going to do it on their own. And by the way, I'm talking about a record, a record industry that existed, you know, 30 years ago. I have right. no idea 
what the deal is today. Seems different today. So when you realized, okay, this isn't going to work, and you guys had to start working jobs, uh, mm-hmm. what did you do? I mean, I, I, I don't know. Is it true that you considered going to Specs Howard as a student, maybe getting in the DJ side? Is that something I you did? Thought? I went in once. I did it. I went in one time, and they said, D- "Do a tape." Uh, and so I did a tape. <laughs> and I realized, I realized that I had a mush mouth. You know, it just I didn't realize I, I, it wasn't it wasn't something I was aware of. I knew that I had a good. You know, I knew that I could drag up a good tone and if i sang i was fine but if i spoke Uh um i i heard it right you know it was it was intimidating to hear yourself on tape just speaking and not listening for content but listening for uh quality of of just you know the the performance it was pretty discouraging i did not go back after that Well, um, you, you did end up doing behind the scenes because I think you went on to be the music supervisor at E! Entertainment I Television. Did. Talk about up, this gig. This sounds cool. I ended up going back to California. I, what I did is I learned, um, after spending so much time in the studio, I learned, and this is one of the, this is one of the, one of the last things that I, that, I, that I saw before I left Detroit was we were recording at White Room Studios with the Nero Brothers, and Rock, Kid Rock was I, like doing work at at the studio as well and he was this was you know this was pre you know pre kid rock kid rock and we got along we were we were friends um i liked i liked bob you know he was funny and cool he was you know um loud he 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 was like uh he was like a lot of guys that i grew up with you know and and to be crude you know he was he was crude he was rude he was uh um loud um but that, the, you know, the, not me, but that, you know, like the opposite of me, but like, but very much like the. the but there was West a certain side. kind of cockiness to you guys. Yeah, the West, the West, the, the West Side trailer trash kind of dudes that I grew up with. You know, that's I grew up in Inkster, Michigan. So that's West Side, you know, and we had our own. We were not East Side. We were not elegant. We were we were rough and tumble. And um, and so rock was so I liked rock. And um, I knew him, and we uh, uh, and he showed me something real. He showed me something really quick. He was like, "Check out what I'm. Check out this new this new piece of machinery I got." And uh, it was a four track hard disc, and he could sample entire. You know, he could he could he could just you know cut and paste with this with this new piece of equipment. And back then we were still recording on two inch. Yeah, this is pre digital, so don't think this is easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, exactly. Let's make that clear. This is pre digital, but but Rock had this amazing piece of equipment, and I was like, wow, that is the future of Rock. There it is, right there. That's exactly what I've always wanted. You know, just take that chorus and fly it over there. And um, but what I did is I start and I saw that, and I was like, this is amazing. It captivated me. I started to learn editing. And then I started to learn video editing. And so I became, I became a pretty good, you know, I became pretty, pretty good on a, a avid video editor and uh, went, to, went to Los Angeles, went back to Los Angeles after leaving Detroit, found a job as uh, I, started, I started doing video editing. I started doing video editing around LA and, um, and then somebody had, uh, I, I went to E-Networks because they had said, you know, they had openings for video editors. I put in my resume. And a part of my resume was the fact that I was an artist on CBS and had music background. Sure, it didn't hurt. Didn't hurt. 
And uh, I got a phone call from Ian. They said, uh, well, we don't really need a, another video editor, but um, you've, got this, uh, you've got this background in music. Would you, would you consider coming in and, and being, our, uh, being one of our music supervisors? And I needed a gig. And I went, I had no idea what a music supervisor was, but the word music and supervisor I was familiar with. So <laughs> I went, yeah. And then I, then I looked it up. I was like, music... M-U-S, music supervisor. Okay, I that's can do this, God. I can do this job. Let's go. And that's how I became a music supervisor at, uh, at E, and that's how I started a 20-year career, you know, doing music supervision for uh, E, Comcast, NBC, Universal. So without the sound of sounding ignorant, what does a music supervisor for E! Television do? Uh, he's a waiter that brings drinks to the director. <laughs> A music supervisor rarely gets to use, at least in television, at least in my experience, rarely gets to use his real expertise, which is, which is the um, understanding and appreciation and being able to, you know, pick the, you know, pick the good songs from the flock of bad songs that arrive on your desk and say, this is, you know, this should work for here. This should work for here. This should work for here. Basically, you know, what I was doing was uh, in a lot of ways was, uh, producers and directors, they would go to a party, they'd hear a song and then they'd come over and they'd be like, I heard this song last night. I want to use it in the promo. Now you go, go get the rights. <laughs> and so that in a lot of, in a lot of ways, you know, that's what I did. I was, I went and got the rights for, you know, I negotiated the rights for the use of music. One of the super supervisors, you know, at least in that, you know, in that capacity is best, you know, biggest jobs is to just negotiate um, licenses and uses. So just, I mean, this is a curious, I'm curious about this. So how does that happen? So I'm, I'm a famous musician that has a famous song and you want to use that. Like what you call me and say, and negotiate a price. Is that how it works? No, I'm not me, but maybe the, the, the person who owns the music. I mean, no, because a musician typically like is what we did with our label. Um, they've sold their publishing already. Somebody came in and put a bag of money on their table and said, we're going to take your publishing uh, for this amount of money for the next 10 years or three years or for the rest of your life. And you're as, a, and most musicians, you know, way back when would be like publishing okay. what's publishing. Or what, I, I've heard that word. I don't know what it does. Yeah. But, but here's money. <laughs> money for This thing that I don't even know what it does. Sounds good to me. Let's go. And then you end up, you know, signing away your publishing. So your publishing is actually money that you make, that you can make uh, when your song is, uh, uh, when your song is used for licensing, when it's licensed, you know, there's two parts of a song. There is the actual, there's the, you know, there's the idea of the song, which is to say something like Mary had a little lamb. Everybody knows Mary had a little lamb, but is there one particular recording of that song that is iconic that, you know, I, I'm going to say no, but <laughs> in my, ex in my world of examples, no, but how about house of the rising sun? Okay. Once again, bad example, because that is a uh, that's in the public domain, I believe, at least the publishing element of it is should be anyway. It's a traditional. It's an old traditional. But the recording that everybody knows is, well, I mean, most people know is the animals. Or if you're from Detroit, you might throw in frigid pink. But there's two sides of the song. There's the side of the song that's publishing, which is the idea of the song. And then there is the physical copy of the song that you would actually use. And that is the master side. So typically you're going to go to the person who owns the publishing 
to get the rights to use the song. And at the same time, you're going to negotiate which version of the song you want to use from the person who owns the master. So that is, is, is really in a nutshell, how you license a song. Uh, there's a, you know, obviously there's, everything goes into that in terms of like how you want to use it, where you want to use it, how, how long, much, you want how to, long, right? The time, right? You know, in what territories do you want to use it? You know, did you ever have a situation where, where somebody said, Hey, I want to license rhythm core. Uh, yeah, I'm actually working with that right now. You're kidding me. Yeah. How does that work? I mean, this is a conflict, right? You know, um, no, it's, it's weird because, um, we did get our publishing back. Um, I, I do have the, and I do have the agreements, but getting ASCAP to getting ASCAP and the other publisher to release, you know, the rights, which are intact until they are not intact, no matter what you have, um, until it has been proven or, or everyone agrees that the rights should be revert, should revert, um, there's still there's still a certain amount of rights that are that are being held by another company. And as far as the master goes, um, well, that's just that's typically always going to be so that's always going to be Sony. I'm pretty sure they have our masters unless there's a law that gets unless there's unless, you know, a, a, the law, laws change, um, they will own our masters for, forever. So that that negotiation, as far as I'm concerned, for the rights that I have, yes, <laughs> for the rights that I don't have, you're on your own. So that's I'm dealing with a music supervisor who's trying to put it all in a, who's trying to do that. And believe me, I feel, I feel for him because I've been in that position. And speaking of that position, you were at E for five years before you took a similar position for Comcast as a music manager. How, what was this? Why did you make this move? And how was this different from your job at E? Once, you know, like just to be clear, I'm just so that, so that we're clear about this. Um, Comcast eight E. <laughs> Okay. Comcast came by and just gobbled up E. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah, they did. And so that became, and that became that. And then frankly, uh, Comcast came by, they wanted to gobble up um, NBC, but that wasn't, they, but you know, uh, that was not allowed. So they gobbled up uh, E networks, which was at that point, I think four, I think we had four networks. And uh, so we became Comcast. But eventually, they were allowed to buy NBC Universal, and then even though it was still Comcast, in that realm, NBC Universal had the clout and and, and name recognition. So right. they could have just, you know, they could have just said NBC doesn't exist anymore. We're now Comcast, but they didn't. They said we're going with the name recognition, and they just became, and then and then we became NBC Universal now under the parent company of Comcast. So your Makes job sense. has pretty much been the same. It's just that you've done it for three different companies. <clears throat> that is correct. Wow, three... that's a long time to be at a job. That's what fifteen years now, or at the time. Yeah, I was like, I think I was there for like, I think I was there for fifteen years. Yeah, wow. it was a long time to be. It was a long time to be a music supervisor. It was a long time to be in that, in the in the uh, uh, in the belly of the beast. Now, did your oh. job change with the companies, or was it always basically the no. same? I mean, I mean, I moved up. You know, uh, I moved up to you know. Uh, in the, you know, in the company and in my position where, um, and eventually one of the, one of the things that I got was because it was kind of my specialty is, um, I was in charge of all the technical, um, elements of, uh, uh, creation and distribution. I was, I was good with, uh, I was good with the digital elements. 
Yeah, it got so much easier when it became digital. So why why did you leave eventually? I think in 2013. Why did you leave uh, after such a long stint? Were you just oh sick that of it? was uh, um and in fact when when they became NBC Universal, a lot of a lot of uh, um departments were duplicated. NBC Universal and Comcast both existed out of Philadelphia at that point. I mean NBC Universal was actually out of New York, but Comcast was out of Philly, and they were enamored with. NBC Universal. So anything that was NBC Universal, we became um, we became secondary. So it was Philly and New York that were making all the decisions, and us and everybody over on the West Coast just sort of you know dealt with whatever they what whatever they wanted. So our departments were being duplicated by departments at NBC, and eventually my department was duplicated. Uh, was they recognized that our, our department was duplicated and they just let us go. And that was, you know, and, and being, you know, and I think I was like, what was I? It was like in my 50s at that time. And basically, yeah, really, really one of the older people in, uh, in that business. Um, I was kind of like one of the old, you know, old wise guys. Right. You know, of go, music. Talk to, go talk to Michael, he'll set you straight. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> now I have to ask like, you about, but I mean, like, 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 you know, literally and uh, literally and figuratively, it was one of the old. I was one of the old wise guys. That's fun. Now I want to ask you about your next occupational choice because I'm fascinated with the fact that you sell real estate. This is amazing to me on several different levels. Because first off, mm. what what made you champ going from music to real estate isn't exactly what you'd. Uh, think of as a straight line how did you come to be a realtor and, and is that something you wanted to do for a while and why do you do it oh it was certainly something i had considered i remember being a music I, you know like this is this is a very very uh, clear thought of mine you know being a music supervisor hanging out with music supervisors is interesting especially when you've been a musician actually being the person who creates the product that the music supervisors work with and I remember thinking and talking to all these people and it was so weird being in this room with a ton of music supervisors. And I don't mean to demean anybody, but like they all thought they were in the music business. And, and I was like, actually I've been in the music business. This is, and I can tell you right now, this is not the music business. This is, this is not, this is not really where the heart of this business is. Right. This is, this is like, you know, the drive through window of the music business. And um, which which I always always kind of thought. So at certain points in my career, realize you know realizing that I was like, what what else? What else is out there? And you know I knew that uh, I I always enjoyed uh, you know I'd had several houses. Uh, I always enjoyed looking. We always made good investments in terms of houses because you know just had a had a you know first of all real estate is a you know it's it's hard to screw up, but it's also you know, but it's also not that, you know, it's, it's not that hard to screw up sometimes too, by, by just making bad moves. Um, but I thought, but we always made, you know, we always made good moves and thought we were pretty, you know, thought, uh, I thought I was pretty good at it. So, um, I thought to myself, I could, I, I, you know what, I could be saving myself a lot of money and doing this. Maybe I should, maybe I should sell houses. Now I'm working. Now I'm working. Like, why would I do that? I'll do it when I retire. How about that? And that was always sort of my thought. I was like, I'll sell houses when I retire because number one, I think I'm good at it. And number two, I, I like people. 
so um, when that happened, I had to decide what I was going to do. And for a minute, I thought I would just like go out and be an independent music supervisor. And I realized really quick, I was sitting across the table from people who were a lot younger than I, uh, I was and didn't, and no matter what I knew or what they knew about me, I was not as cool. <laughs> so there was, with that perception being, you know, waylaid, I needed to, I, I found myself going like, you know what? I don't think it's going to work. Let's, let's go right to the retirement move. And, uh, uh well, and it's not a bad gig. I'm, you, you seem to be doing well. And I will say this, I know a lot of real estate agents and, uh, and I know one thing that you have to do and I, and I know you make some amazing videos. If you follow Michael on Facebook, he makes some very creative videos to promote himself, but that's what I want to ask you about you. There's a lot of realtors. Uh, that, that sell in your same area. Do you find that the, the promotion you did as a front man kind of comes into play to help you promote yourself as a realtor? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, you know, there, there are a lot of the, there are a lot of elements. I just take, you know, I take the tools that I have. I take the skills that I have and I just, I try to leverage all of the skills that I have um, to, you know, continually, you know, just move forward in whatever I'm doing. And in this, you know, I don't, I don't think there's going to be another gig after this, but like, you know, right now it's real estate and, and it's been real estate for a while. So, uh, um, I will continue to be somebody who promotes himself in ways that most realtors don't understand. And they're always yeah, looking at people like you that are like, oh, he, he does this. That's cool. He does that. But they can never emulate it because they don't understand uh, what you're doing. Does anybody yeah, ever recognize yeah, you? <laughs> yeah. If you, don't get the con if you don't get the concept of it, you're not going to get it. And most, real most realtors are, are pretty much salesmen and, and, and kind of linear in that way. Um, that serves them. And, and, and it serves an awful lot of them. Let's face it. I'm not going to say it doesn't. Um, but I have, a different, I have a little bit different approach. Now, when you're out uh, showing or, or, you know, introducing yourself to prospective clients, does anybody ever recognize you and, and how does that play? <laughs> no, not out in California. No, no. I don't look anything like I do. I know you do. I was watching uh, a couple of your videos last night and I was like, yeah, he doesn't look anything like that anymore. No, I don't look like, I don't look like my 80s rock star self. Um, I look like my dad, actually, in a way. <laughs> Tongue, tongue but, in cheek, uh, I'd probably play, if I was in a car with a client. Tongue in cheek, I'd be like, "Hey, this is a. Have you heard of this band called Rhythm Core? Yeah, that's me. I'm kind of a big deal back <laughs> in Detroit. You might, you might. I mean, the you know the thing is, is like there have I I I do have I, I I do have clients who have done the math, who have done the research on me, and surprised me, um, in the car, and like, <laughs> you're Michael Pershing Rhythm Core, <laughs> you know, with a grin on that, like with a knowing grin on their face, you know, like right. I just like, almost like I just busted you. And, uh, and that's funny, you know, and I never say like, I never, I'm, it's not, I'm, it's not like you're a bad character from the Larry Sanders show yeah. where you carry around Michael Persh headshots with the here, here, I'll sign it for you. All right. Just. No, but, it's, but, it's, <laughs> but it's funny. And everyone, you know, and then every once in a while they're like, ah, you know, I, I remember that song and blah, blah, blah. You know, so that's a, uh, that's interesting. One of the, you know, and the thing is, is I do have a, a, one of my niches is uh, musician clients, um, clients who are looking for houses and places with studios or, or a place that can actually be a studio. And um, because I have experience with it, I'm able to vet, you know, 
you go to a house that says, hey, this house has a recording studio. And then you, I go take a look at it real quick. And I'm like, that's not, that's a, that's a garage with a couple of egg, egg cartons on the <laughs> And don't waste your time, right? It's like, this is not a, this is not a studio. But that said, if we did A, B, C, and D, this could work. Or if I'll go into a place that actually has a studio and I come back to my client, I'm like, dude, uh, I think this is Tommy Lee's house that we're looking at. That's funny. This studio is crazy. Let's go. I, uh, I also want to ask, I mentioned a moment ago that uh, you make creative videos. One of my favorites is when you had, uh, you, but, but, look, the way you use Alexa in your videos, where did you come? I mean, it's so simple. It's brilliant that you, you, you utilize Alexa in these funny videos. Where did this come? How did this come to you? Um, that was, uh, that's, you know, necessity. I had to have a foil. I had to have somebody to work off of. And, um, I had, I had my dog spike be the foil for, you know, a couple of times, but mainly I thought Alexa was, you know, when I realized I could program her to say anything I wanted her to say, <laughs> I was like, this is, this is perfect. Um, it's going to be, you know, I am going to be her straight man. I love how I love how she turns your computer off when you're watching World War II documentaries. That that's brilliant. Yeah, she's like, yeah, or she's, you know, whatever 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 she's got in mind. Um you know, cuz you know, it's a smart home, so she can turn off all the lights or she can, you know, whatever. But but you know, I think every and I I also felt like everybody could relate to the idea that, you know, we're all in we're all um interfacing with AI or not even AI, we're all interfacing with like, you know, somewhat artificial intelligence at the moment uh, in these, in this election. And I, and I just felt, I felt like everybody could relate to this. I thought it would be funny. Um, let's, let's, let's take it a little bit step into the absurd, like um, instead of the mundane, which is basically, which is usually the conversation you have with Alexa. <laughs> but, um, well, be before we wrap up, Michael, I have a couple of questions about uh, 2019. Uh, I want to ask you about uh, Rhythm Corps' performance at St. Andrews. You guys came back to Detroit. Everybody raved about it. In fact, I still see posts today of people sharing that memory. Talk about how that came to be, and and do you have any more plans to do that again? Yeah, we um, every once in a while, you know, the great thing about Rhythm Corps is we're still great friends. You know, we love each other. We're 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 our own family. I mean, I love my brothers and sisters. I love my family. Um, rhythm core is a rhythm core is another family. And I know everybody in the band, you know, everybody in the band feels the same way. You know, our phone calls with each other is like, all right, love you, man. Bye. You know, always like that. Every, every couple of years, the call goes out. It's just like, should we, should we do it this year? You guys, what you guys feel like doing it this year? And Davey's like, oh, you know, like we can't do it during Thanksgiving, but maybe during Christmas. Like we, we have that conversation and it's a, and it's a conversation that we have to have because we know that when we do that, it's six months of us rehearsing by ourselves and then spending one solid week rehearsing together in Detroit, all to do, you know, two hours on stage. It's a commitment. It's a real honest to God commitment. It's like training for the Olympics, you know, I mean, well, sort of, but, you know, except you, you don't have to, be, to worry about a French judge, you know, no, you don't. No, but you know, you do have to worry about being in a spotlight. You do have to worry about being in front of a cloud. I'm the loudest, brightest person in that room. And if I don't look and sound good, it's a problem. I can't do anything about my age, 
but I can do something about my physicality and my voice. And that's always something I, you know, at this point, those are still things I can work on. And everybody else in the band to a degree is like, you know, has the same, has the same consideration. You know, playing the drums is not something that you can't just not do for a year and a half and then sit back down and do. It's, you know, especially when you're Richie Loveson playing in rhythm core. That's a, that's a hard job. That guy sweats. It's, you know, he sweats up a storm every night. You know, he used to, he, his fingers used to bleed. You know, Davy Bass does not just stand there. Alfie does not just stand there. You know, when we get on stage, it's a, it's a thing. So we have to be, you know, we have to be in good shape and we have to be rehearsed and uh, we have to be ready to rock. So it's a, it's a hell of a commitment, but um, for, for that show, we wanted to do something that was going to be, we wanted to do something really fun and make it as, and make it as big as possible. Um, because we keep, you know, we've, we only have a finite amount of songs. Certainly we can rotate different ones because uh, we only play every couple of years, but um, we want to do something different. So we talked about it and I reached out to somebody that I liked um, and I've always respected Terry Burns from uh, the Cork, Corktown Popes. And um, I said, I think you, I think you guys would be the, of the perfect opening band for us. Um, you know, it'll be like a, you know, let, let's do this. And then I also reached out to Mike Skill and I reached out to Tony because my Tony from Figures on a Beach is one of my thoughts was let's just do something that brings a lot of Detroit music into the, into the show, like a lot of bang for your buck. You know, I've got figures on a beach. I've got the romantics and I've got the Corktown Popes. Like let's, this is going to be a great night of Detroit music. And I've got rhythm core. This is going to be a great night of Detroit music. So that just kind of like, I, first of all, got everybody on board. And then I started, then we started the publicity machine about three months before the show. And, um, we were rehearsed we were ready to go and then we brought everybody else into this into uh, uh the rehearsal hall and uh you know tony arrived he was tony from uh, figures on a beach he was ready to go he had already been working over you know zoom with uh, uh with greg apro um and mike skill just knew what we were going to do uh, i don't i don't have to i don't have to like tell mike to rehearse Mike is just always ready to rock. Right. And uh, he's constantly, you know, he, he's, he's a player. So then we all got together and we rehearsed for, we set aside one full day of just rehearsing with Skill and, um, and Tony and, and the Popes and everything. And we just went at it and it was great. Um, we, knew we, were, we knew it was going to be fun. We knew it was going to be a great show. And we were just, and, you know, so when we hit the stage and we did one more rehearsal at, uh, we did one more rehearsal at Soundcheck. Everybody was just like, oh, this is going to be fun. That's cool. um, so we, everybody hit the stage with great attitudes, no trepidation, knowing that we had, you know, we had some parameters that we could play with, but knowing that the heart of the show was just going to be, uh, uh, was, was very well in the bag. And we were going to surprise everybody because we didn't even tell anybody that Mike Skill was going to be there. You know, I promoted the fact that the Popes were going to be there and that and Tony from Figures on a Beach was going to be there. But I didn't say anything about Mike. And so I was I thought, you know, 
that's what I'm going to spring on everyone at the end of the day. And so at the end of the show, I was like, okay. And one more thing, by the way, here's Mike's skill. And now we're going to do what I like about you. Wow. Let's go. <laughs> I got to tell you, I just to interject my opinion here, just to talk, just you talking about what goes into this show, six months, one week and a night. And you guys haven't, I mean, that says to me, all you need to know about how much you love your fans. I think it's cool. Yeah. Uh, well, good point. And how afraid we are of being on stage. <laughs> There's another point. Now, any, you know, I don't want to said, I'm the, at, at any given show, I'm the loudest guy in the room. I had, you know, I'm the loudest, brightest guy in the room. Better be, <laughs> better be worthy of that position. Now I'm not going to ask you for dates, but, uh, obviously you guys talk about it all the time, as you mentioned, uh, I'm sure you got to want to wait till after this COVID if it ever goes away, which probably won't. But do you guys have any imminent plans maybe in the next couple of years of, of replicating that performance here in Detroit? All I can tell you is absolutely. I love that answer, sir. Love that answer. In, th in the meantime, what's next for Michael Persh? I am, uh, as we talk right now, Ron, I'm camping. Um, I am camping in a condo in Palm Springs because I'm flipping it. Of course you are. That's awesome. That's what I'm doing. I am like knee deep in the, I'm knee deep. I like, I've, I, I'm still, uh, you know, I, I still have clients. Uh, I'm, as a matter of fact, I'm working with some clients in LA right now, but I saw an opportunity to buy a place in Palm Springs and flip it. And, um, and that's exactly what I'm doing right now. And it is turning out so cool. I will be back on, you know, I've, I've taken a break from social media because, you know, um, just it, it's been a heavy couple of years, uh, both personally and and just in general. And uh, it's social media has just not been conducive to my idea of uh, of uh, of a world in harmony. Yeah, it's it's so, it's it's out. It's rough out there right now. Ooh. Yeah, it's like it's completely rough out there. So. Um, so I've just kind of been lying low, but when I, uh, uh, but, but there's probably two things will come together at the same time. And that one of them is like me getting this place done. And another thing is us finally, hopefully getting to be, you know, within a short amount of time, maybe being able to put a little show together. So when I come out of my social media self exile, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to promote this place that I have out here. Um, let everybody know what I've been doing for the last couple of months um and uh and then hopefully um shortly we'll be able to talk about uh, some other rhythm core elements other rhythm core things there's there's a couple of there's a couple of things in the works right now and um uh one of them is putting out the old record on spot you know getting the old record dusted off and remastered and ready for spotify and Very cool. uh, the sony which the, the the two uh the two cbs or the two sony uh albums which are not out there right now but i'm getting them ready and um and then possibly a show which we want to do what we want to do like you said we love our fans i would never put my fans in jeopardy um or as or or as or as you know i would never i would never want to be cavalier about their safety let's put it that way I'd be remiss if I didn't say one more thing about, you know, you mentioned you're kind of taking a break off of Facebook, but before you kind of took that break, you were doing some interesting things, I think on Thursday night where you were kind of going live and, and uh, you had your boy on the bongos. Talk a little bit about what that, cause I would tune in for, oh, once again, that's, that was cool. That, that's, uh, that's Randy. Um, 
once again, Randy and I, dear, we're the dear, we're, we're the be, we're best friend, we're best of friends. Um, and uh, Randy Sawson, we call him Sauce, and uh, he loves to spin vinyl. And I love to spin vinyl, but I love watching him do it. And frankly, you know, we put together, and like I said, here, here's where, here's where my, my love of technology comes back into play. I can spin vinyl, Randy can spin vinyl, but Randy enjoys it so much. And I enjoy doing the behind the scenes um, tech work, which is setting up the cameras and uh, doing the editing. So I'm doing the live editing. Um, I produce the show and Randy does the show. And that works out just fun. We have such a great time. I will tell you, Randy and I have a house in, uh, in uh, um, Hollywood and we, um, we have one room dedicated to, to uh, vinyl, to, to two turntables and all of our vinyl. And I've got cameras and green screens and, um, and then an editing bay set up. And on Thursday nights, we were just hitting it. That's uh, cool. Lights would go down and we have, you know, and of course there's speakers, you know, we're, we've got, we've got feeds coming out of the, you know, we've got feeds coming out going directly into Facebook and Twitter, uh, uh, Facebook and uh, uh, Twitch. Um, and where else were I think we're where else were we I I think we're YouTube I, whatever I, it was always interesting because every once in a while you get like a, a copyright strike and you know, something would be on there but I'm oh, always yeah. I, but I to, oh. to come full circle what I loved about it is was, it was, I imagined if there was video and computer and internet in the 1970s 60s that's how WJOM would have aired their music by what you're doing that's how that's what it reminds me of yeah. the old school yeah. radio shows it's what we do and we have a lot we have a lot of fun with it you know i compile a bunch of videos that i just you know i steal videos from the <laughs> it's it's thievery at it's it's art and thievery at it's you know art is art is thievery to it begin is. with but uh, uh this is this is high art and thievery at it's like you know at, at it's the highest level at the highest level that we can bring with the with the budget that we have <laughs> That's awesome. Michael, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. I appreciate you. All, all continued success. I appreciate you. Uh, thanks, Ron. Thank you very much, man. Thanks again to Michael Pershing. Of course, you you heard him here. He's They're coming back to Detroit, so pay attention to that. And, of course, when I find out about that, I will share that with you. And, again, thank you for t- tuning in to Radio Days, the podcast. Keep an eye out for Radio Days, the movie, coming this spring. Tune in next week. I'll have another episode of Radio Days, the podcast. Until then. You can't go. All the plants are going to die.